Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 67. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 67. Now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. This is the word of the living God, and we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Living God, now we pray that you might... Reveal to us your finished word as it is proclaimed, revealing to us in it the truths that you have for us. Guide us, comfort us, convict us, leave us not the same from having heard your word proclaimed. We pray that by your spirit you would cause us to recognize the voice of our shepherd in the words of Scripture. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, in our passage this morning, we see a fulfillment of prophecy that we saw just last week. If you were with us last week, we read the very last book of the Old Testament. And in it, there was a promise that the Messiah would come. This is all part of God's work, which he promised Daniel hundreds of years before the coming of Christ. And in the book of Malachi, we saw the temple being rebuilt and completed. We saw God's people moving as they waited into a period of spiritual coldness. And God said, the Messiah will come, and shortly before him, one final prophet We see the fulfillment of that in Luke's gospel account in chapter 1. That final prophet before the coming Messiah is John the Baptist. And boys and girls, this morning the sermon text sounds a little bit like we're talking about baby Jesus. It says at the end, the child will be called the prophet of the highest. The child grew and became strong in spirit. But here we have a reference to John the Baptist who was sent to prepare the way for the coming Christ. But if we were to broaden out our look in the book of Luke for just a moment, we'll see one central theme 
And it really is praising God when you see his salvation. Now, our sermon this morning has four points, but if we were to summarize the first two chapters of Luke, a theme that arises, really the theme that arises, is praising God when you see his salvation. Now, here's what I mean. Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, praises God. That's really the main opening point of verse 68, isn't it? Blessed is the Lord God of Israel. That could be translated, blessed be, praises be to the Lord God of Israel. But he's not the first to do it in the book of Luke. Go back just a few verses to chapter 1, verse 46. We won't read all of it, but Mary... The mother of Christ says this, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my savior. And then there's this long list that she gives of what God has done and why he is to be praised. Mary praises God when she receives word that God has sent his promised salvation. Zacharias praises God when he receives word that God has sent his promised salvation. But look over at chapter 2. There are two others who praise God. You see, Mary, Zacharias, and these last two, Simeon and Anna, were all waiting. Waiting just like their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents all the way back to Daniel. They were waiting for God's promise. And they see it. Mary sees it. The angel tells her. Zechariah receives it. And then, shortly after the birth of Christ, notice what happens in the book of Luke, chapter 2, verse 30. Simeon, who has been waiting his entire life, sees God's promised salvation. Notice in verse 25 of Luke chapter 2. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel or the comfort of Israel. You can read of that idea back in Isaiah 40 and following. Waiting for the comfort or consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, our text today is not Luke chapter 2, verse 25 and following. We're not going to talk about Simeon today, but I just have to pause here for just a moment and say, imagine if the living God revealed to you that you would not die till you see the return of Christ. The waiting and the longing that would be upon your soul. Verse 27, and he came by the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, he took up in his arms and blessed God, praised God, magnified God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Mary, Zacharias, Simeon. And then briefly, look at verse 38, a woman by the name of Anna. 
Now there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. Another sermon to be preached. Sisters, there's work for you to do until you die. Every day, praying, praying for God's people, praying for the coming of the Lord. And look what happens in verse 38. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Luke is giving us a theme, isn't he? Over and over and over, the people of God are waiting. And over and over and over, four times in the first two chapters, salvation is seen and people praise God for it. Salvation is seen and people praise God for it. So let's go back to our text in verse 68. Just prior to Zacharias' prophecy, we read of the birth of John the Baptist, of his circumcision, of his being named, of his father being mute for a season. And now we read this very famous passage of praise to God. It's really one long sentence from verse 68 all the way to verse 75. The original language, it's it's one long sentence. Zechariah is just pouring forth with praise. And front and center is the theme. Blessed or praised be the Lord God of Israel. Okay, why? Why? The rest of this passage gives us the reason why God should be praised. What does this doxology present as the grounds for God being worthy of being blessed or praised? We see four things. Four reasons why Zacharias is praising God when he sees God's salvation. Number one. God has visited his people. God has visited his people. That's literally what the next phrase says. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. That could be translated, he has looked after us. Visited is a great translation, and it's an important one, as we'll see in just a moment. But the word carries that connotation. The Lord has looked after us. But one of the reasons why many translators use the word visited is because this is not the first time in Holy Scripture where God is described as bringing visitation upon his people. We see this word again, of course, in verse 78. Through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us. But this is actually an ancient theme for God's people. Turn all the way back to Exodus. Exodus chapter three. Exodus chapter three. There in Exodus chapter three and verse 16. We read these words. 
Moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord God your fathers, of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and of Jacob appeared to me saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. The Hebrews of old would speak of God having visited his covenant people and having brought them redemption or salvation. So here, Zacharias picks up on that ancient theme of God having brought his people redemption and freedom out of Egypt. And he says, now the Lord has visited us and redeemed us. If you're new to the Bible, here's how this works. After the first human beings were created and they sinned and fell against God. God gave him a promise. And that promise is carried all the way throughout the Bible. The promise is the Son of God would come. But very quickly, God gives that promise to a man by the name of Abram. And that promise is carried out. And those people who carry in their flesh the promise that from our people, from the Hebrews, will come this promised Son of God. They experience a whole host of things. They sacrifice to be able to come into God's presence. God gives them a place to worship, a temple. You can come into my presence. God gives them promises. God gives them priests. He gives them his word. And he also walks with them through various experiences, one of which was that they were taken into slavery and he visited them and freed them. All of those things are pictures of what Jesus will do. He will bring freedom from sin. He will be the priest. He will be the temple. He will be the one to visit God's people and bring them out of slavery. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited his people and redeemed his people. That word there, redeemed his people. Perhaps it could even be translated slightly more crisply to our minds when we hear it this way. He has made redemption. He has visited us and made redemption. Redemption. And notice what the next verse says. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Now, David was one of those members of the family of Abraham who was a king who also got a promise that this son of God, this Messiah would come from his family and would be a king. But what is this idea of a horn of salvation? Zacharias is praising God because God has visited his people. He's made redemption for them. Part of that description we read when he says he raised up a horn of salvation for us. This is actually a theme that is all over the Old Testament. Let me give you one example. Turn over to Psalm 18 for just a moment. Psalm 18 and verse 2. There we read a song of praise for God's salvation. And notice what it says, Psalm 18, I will love you, O Lord, my strength, 
The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation. Now that's not the only place it's used. It's used in multiple places all throughout the Old Testament. The horn is a metaphor for strength. And specifically, the horn appears on the strongest of animals. Think, boys and girls, about all the animals that God created. Dogs, cats, fish, birds. Big animals like elephants. Teeny little animals like goldfish. But there are animals in our world who are very strong, who often bring about strength through the horns on their heads. Horn is what these animals use as a fighting tool to win a battle. And you see this idea in places like Psalm 75:10, Lamentations 2:3. The Lord hasn't just visited us and made redemption. The Lord has also fought the battle with strength and won for our salvation. This has been the echo of the Old Testament. Where will the horn of our salvation be? Where will the strength of our salvation be? As the psalmist says in Psalm 18.1, I will praise the Lord, for He is my rock, my deliverer, and the horn of my salvation. Notice that this salvation comes from a particular house, in the house of His servant David. We won't linger here other than to say this. This is another connection to Jesus Truly God and truly man, born of a woman, fulfilling God's covenant with David. That David, it will be in your house that the king would come. Zacharias praises God because God has visited his people. God has looked after his people. Is this on your mind today? Is this in your mind as you sing praises to God that God has visited us? And not just that God has appeared, but that in God's visitation, he's done in an eternal way, really, what he did on a small scale when he freed those people from slavery in Egypt. He has visited us. And in his visitation to free us, he is not a weak Deliverer. He is the horn of our salvation. God has visited his people. That's a reason why Zacharias says God is to be blessed. But there's a second reason. Notice as we continue in our text, it's that God has kept his word. Not only has God visited us with strong salvation, but he's kept his word. Look at verse 70. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. You ever praise God this way? I praise God because he kept his word. I praise God because he's done what he said that he would do. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. 
to perform the mercy promised to our father and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we might be delivered. Notice all of the ways in those few verses that God is seen as keeping his word. He's done what the prophets said that he would do, number one. He's remembered his covenant, number two. And what he swore to Abraham, he has accomplished. Number three, God has kept his word. Now, in that phrase there, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, let me just give you a brief sample of what this means. I'll just read to you what William Hendrickson writes regarding God's Old Testament predictions of the coming of Jesus. This might be particularly helpful to some of you who are questioning whether Jesus Christ really is who Christians say that he is. Long before Christ comes, listen to all of the places that the Old Testament prophets said that he would come. And again, William Hendrickson collates all of this. To Moses, he says that Jesus will be the prophet whom God will raise up. To David, he said that the Messiah would be the one who would sit on God's right hand. To Isaiah, Jesus would be Emmanuel, God with us, wonderful counselor, the one wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, as our brother read just a few moments ago. To Jeremiah and Zechariah, Jesus is called the branch. To Jeremiah, he is also called the Lord, our righteousness. To Ezekiel and Zechariah, he's called the shepherd. To Daniel, he's called a son of man whose dominion is an everlasting dominion. To Micah, he's called a ruler in Israel. And to Malachi, as we saw just last week, Jesus, through the mouth of Malachi, is called the angel of the covenant. Hundreds of years apart, steadily and regularly, the prophets of God were saying he's coming. And God has kept his word. Now notice in verse 71 that part of the word that God has kept is that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. There are a variety of Old Testament images here. It's almost as if Zechariah is just pouring out Old Testament verses and images in his praise. And of course, he would have. As a devout Hebrew following in the ways of God, he would have known the word of God, law, wisdom, prophets. And he's just pouring out all of these themes. So who are the people who hate us that God delivers from? Well, again, turn to Psalm 18. There we read these words. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. Or how about Psalm 106, verse 10? Psalm 106, verse 10. He saved me, or saved them, from the hand of him who hated them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. We could go on for quite a long time, brothers and sisters. Regularly, the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms of praise, God is seen as being praised because he has freed his people from their enemies. Now, in the Old Testament, Israel had many enemies, earthly enemies, like the Philistines and the Egyptians, sometimes earthly enemies who were within the family 
like one of David's sons. These allusions are likely references to Israel's earthly enemies. But as God's revelation unfolds, that earthly allusion begins to point to a greater enemy. God is to be praised, Zechariah says, because he's visited us and he's kept his word. What's his word, according to Zechariah, by the mouth of the Holy Spirit? That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Who is against any individual? Well, the greatest of enemies. Satan. What stands against an individual? Satan and his kingdom. The requirements of the law. And ultimately the fear of judgment. John Gill, in putting together this passage, argues that these three things really are the greatest of enemies that are in view. Satan and his kingdom. The condemnation of the law because we don't keep it. And the fear of hell. God has visited us and freed us from these things. Verse 72, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath which he swore to our father Abraham. We don't have time this morning to walk through all of the ins and outs of understanding how the covenant or the covenants of scripture work. But here, Zacharias, in Abraham's fleshly family, is saying, God has performed the mercy promised to our fathers and has remembered his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. What did God promise Abraham? Abraham, I want you to look backwards. And I want you to look forwards. I want you to look in the past, Abraham, God would say. And I want you to look into the present. But particularly now into the future. In the past, Abraham, I gave my promise to Adam and Eve and the serpent. That the seed of the woman would come. I want to bring you into that promise, Abraham. Now look down the corridor of time, Abraham. It is going to be in your family, in your flesh, that this seed will come. There will be more promises to come. I will eventually make your family into a nation. I will set up kings in your family. I will give you a land. But for now, the promise is, from your family will the blessing of the nations come. In fact, Abraham, I will give you a sign in your flesh that it will be through you that he will come. So year after year after year, century after century after century, what is it that the Hebrews could boldly claim as marked in their very flesh from us? The promise of the skull crushing seed of the woman will come. It's from our flesh that he will come. Now Zacharias is saying God has remembered this covenant, this promise. To do mercy to us 
and to the nations. So God is to be praised because he's visited his people and because he's kept his word. Thirdly, God is to be praised because he has made his people righteous servants. As we continue in the text, look what it says there. The oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Now, verse 73, and the translations will vary just a little bit. What words go together, where the commas go, where the periods go. But verse 73 in just about every English translation, gives us the purpose clause. Why has God done all this? He's to be praised for doing it. Why has he done it? Verse 73. To give us or to grant us that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear. God is literally granting or giving This reality, this provides the purpose for all of the previous work. Notice how the text continues in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. God is making his people people who will serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness. God is going to do it. And for this, he's to be praised. Now, what does this mean to serve him without fear? I mean, after all, Proverbs chapter one reminds us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. What does it mean to serve the Lord without fear? Well, this, too, is an Old Testament theme. Just a couple of instances. You can turn there if you like or jot these references down to reflect upon later. Psalm 27, verse one. Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Some of you know the next phrase. Whom shall I fear? Psalm 56, verse 11. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Old Testament themes. I'm going to trust in God, and because I'm trusting in God, there is no fear. There may be earthly anxieties. There may be things that rightly cause me to have concern so that I may act in one way or another. But ultimately, with the God of the universe on my side, what do I really have to fear? But it's not just an Old Testament theme, is it? One instance from the New Testament, Romans Chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, just listen to these words. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress 
or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? I don't know if it's ever occurred to us in Romans chapter 8. The Old Testament theme is, if God is on my side, who do I need to fear? In Romans 8, in Romans 8, there's the reality that, but what if something separates God from being on my side? Who shall separate God from being for you, believer? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded. And listen to all of the potential fears at the end of Romans 8. I am persuaded that neither death nor life. So many sermons today. Have you ever considered that in Romans chapter 8, verse 38, that we all kind of linger on that word death? Because that's the greatest of enemies for us, isn't it? Why does Paul say, for I'm persuaded that neither death nor life will be able to separate me? What is it about your living that might separate you from God? (laughs) You, if it was about you, but death nor your life. Christian, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Zacharias borrows Old Testament imagery, which later Paul will, in some sense, deal with as well. God has made us righteous servants who serve him without fear. Without fear from that without. And without fear from that within. But in context, there is just in the phrase before that word enemies, isn't there? We might serve him without fear. Just before that, Zechariah says, being delivered from the hands of our enemies. So we need not fear even Satan, the curses of the law, or the judgment of hell. Because God has made us righteous servants. And for this, Zacharias says we should praise God. Some of you might be thinking to yourself, yeah, but does Zacharias have all of that in view? Perhaps a conversation for another day. But we don't come to the passages of Scripture and only ask the question, what is in the mind of the original author? Human author. Number one, we don't know. But number two, Zacharias prophesying by the Holy Spirit as the human author coming obviously through Luke. It's being filled with the very words of God who is the author of Genesis to Revelation. So there will be themes that will arise before and after our text. Might serve him without fear. God has made us righteous servants. Well, finally, Zechariah gives us one more reason why God is to be praised. He shifts in verse 76. 
In verses 68 to 75, we read of the visitation of God, obviously in Jesus Christ. But then in verse 76, we shift to how this salvation will be proclaimed by John, which was what Malachi said would happen. There will be a forerunner who will come and prepare the way of the Lord. Verse 76, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of sins through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. What's the fourth reason why God is to be praised in this passage? Because God has revealed his mercy. Christian, think on this. Not only is God a God of mercy, he's a God who has revealed his mercy to you. Those are two things. God is a God of mercy, and in his mercy, he's chosen to reveal that mercy to you. More broadly, however, Zacharias says, God has revealed his mercy. Notice the ways in this passage that God is seen as revealing his mercy. Verses 76 and 77, John is going to go before the way of the Lord to show or to give knowledge of forgiveness of sins. Notice verse 77 closely to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. Let's just pause here for one moment before we finish. Let there be no mistake that the Bible preaches the message of salvation. And that that message of salvation is that we are sinners and need to have our sins forgiven. Zacharias doesn't say to give knowledge of God's salvation to his people that they can work for their salvation, that they can be religious enough for their salvation. Now, here we're given one of the many definitions of salvation. God is sending the son. John is going to go ahead of him so that people are prepared for his ways. And the son is going to give salvation. What is that salvation? The remission, the forgiveness, the atonement of sins. What you and I need is for our sins against a holy and righteous God to be forgiven. We can never forgive them or get them forgiven ourselves. We can never work enough to undo the curses of the law that are against us because we've broken God's law. The salvation that we need will only happen if God says, I will clean the slate and I will be the one to provide a righteousness for you. And that's what God in Christ has done. John the Baptist will prepare the way. And do you remember the pinnacle of John's preparation? Sort of one of his final statements before Jesus becomes the theme of all the Gospels? The Lamb of God. He's pointing to Jesus. There he is. The Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sins of the world. John was clear. Zechariah was clear. Jesus was clear. Very first verse of the book of Mark. Repent of your sins and believe in the gospel. 
Sometimes it's people claiming the name of Christ that are not clear. Salvation is the message that a holy God will bring sinners to himself only in the shed blood and righteousness of Jesus. So we are to respond by repenting, turning from our sins, and embracing Christ as the only hope of salvation. God has revealed his mercy. John, you will give knowledge of forgiveness of sins. Another thing John will do in verse 78, through the tender mercies of our God, he's going to proclaim God's mercies. Notice what that next phrase says, with which the day spring from on high has visited us. That could be translated rising sun or dawning sun. Where have we seen that phrase before? Well, Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, promises the day spring on high. We just saw this last week. John is going to proclaim God's mercy. And there's going to be a proclamation of what else? Light and truth, verse 79. To give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. To guide our feet in the way of peace. God is to be praised, Zacharias says, because he's visited his people. He's looked after them. He's brought about a strong, kingly salvation. He's to be praised because he's kept his word. He's to be praised because he has made us unilaterally. He has made us righteous servants. And he's revealed his mercy. Listen, friend. You're here today and you understand that you're a sinner. In the preaching of the word of Christ today. God is offering Christ to you. Now you may say. Yeah, but I I thought there was this whole thing about election and predestination and all of these kinds of things. There is. Praise be the name of our God, because without it, none of us would come. But we are not called to tinker with God's election in our minds. We're called to hear the gospel preached and to respond. Christ is offered to you. The mercy of God today is declared to you. You have many sins that need the washing of God. He's provided that for you. Come. Come. Christ will save. And as he saves you, you with Zechariah, And Mary and Simeon and Anna will say, God is to be praised because he has visited me with his salvation. Let's pray. Almighty God, you have indeed visited your people. The words of scripture from of old before our eyes are coming to pass as we turn from page to page in your holy word. But today we pray that you might remind us of the fact that you are worthy to be praised because you have visited your people. Help us to praise you in this, O Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name.